Imagine a world without waste. Imagine if you can make products and packaging right every time. It's possible with the help of SpecRite, the first cloud-based platform for specification data management. You can track and report on material usage year over year, run LCAs with the click of a button, and comply with new packaging regulations like EPR and the UK plastics tax. Go to specrite.com backslash sustainability to learn more. Hey, everybody. Welcome back here on the People of Packaging podcast. Um, I always find this transition, by the way, can I just share my feelings here, Jason? The transition between like the pre-call banter and then just like, we're going to hit record and then I have to turn into like this different person sometimes. <laughs> it's always an interesting, <laughs> an interesting dynamic that I've never yeah. like spoken out loud, but I feel comfortable with you already. So you kind of hold your breath for a second, though, right? It's like, yeah. right, just before you. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Uh, that other voice you hear is Jason Burke. He is the founder of the new Primal and Noble Maid. Uh, and perhaps you also recognize him from his uh, rap career from the late <laughs> 90s. Um, what was the name of your group again? Yeah, it was called IOD. I um, IOD. Late 90s. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was really when, when like hip hop music was. I would argue in its prime, like the late 90s to like 2010 was just like prime emerging. You had like different views and like nobody's really like making so much money that it was just like it was beautiful. I loved all of it. Um, I've just recently ordered like some like some Tribe Called Quest shirts and like Mary J. Blige and I just I have not got, I'm that guy. I'm like to get off my lawn. I don't want to hear about Drake. Like, <laughs> well, you know, when I, when I go to the gym, uh, it's always, you know, nineties hip hop that, that is in my headphones. So if anyone's ever wondering, I'm not listening to podcasts. I'm not listening to rock. I'm not listening to classical music. It's nineties hip hop music. Yeah. Let me ask you this question then. I don't think I've asked this question. Maybe I've asked this question on the podcast. So I don't remember. So you are given Jason Burke, you're given this weird challenge, which is you can only listen to one artist for the rest of your life. Anything, anything that they've made and any feature they've been on, any group they've been a part of, but you have to pick one artist. I didn't prepare you for this one. So we're getting the, we're getting the, we're getting the real primal answer here. From Man, you, you did not. If you're going to make it to, to one like rap artist, hip hop artist. I mean, you could be any artist, but. Ugh. But you could, you could, you could go down to just hip hop music or rap music. All right, all right. I'm gonna go down to hip hop because it's. It, I, I'm not prepared to sort of cover the entire breadth of of the the musical uh, universe. Um, I go to Biggie way more often than I go to anyone else uh, in my headphones. So I, I I think I'd have to go with that because that tends to be what replays constantly. Yeah. That's a great answer. There's nothing wrong with that. I did, by the way, make a shirt on Canva uh, that because I couldn't find it. It's one of my favorite hip hop lyrics, and it says "Papa been smooth since days of underoos." <laughs> and I made a T-shirt uh, that I wear all the time. And people are like, "What is?" And it just says uh, "Copyright Christopher Wallace." Um, oh my gosh, that's a great T-shirt. I need one. My kids call me Papa. I enjoy it when they call me papa uh anyway <laughs> we'll we'll digress from that uh jason so tell tell the you you own this rad company we're going to talk about it but uh, this is the people of packaging where you know we we put people first and so let's hear about you i mean your your journey where you're at 
Um, how did you get into where it is you are? Take, you can take some time and break it all down. Yeah. You know, I, I never imagined I'd be in the food business. So let's start there. I never imagined I'd be in consumer products. I, um, but I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. I, I grew up in uh, Section 8 housing and um, my mom was uh, smart enough or, or I, I don't even know the right word. Smart is probably not the word, right word, but my mom got me into a, um, got me a special assignment to go to a, the, the, the best school, best public school in the district. And it was in a really highly affluent area of town. So I grew up living sort of this like polarized life between like, you know, my Section 8 apartment and then my friend's who were all rich. Um, and, um, and so it sort of created this, like, you know, this, this desire in me to like want the things that they had. Um, and so I became a bit of an entrepreneur early on, you know, I didn't play sports in school or, um, you know, I didn't join a bunch of social clubs or any of those kinds of things. I started a lawn business. And, uh, and so in high school, I wanted to buy my own car and have my own phone. And, and so I started a lawn business and, and I kept that through college. Um, and, and so I think that built the entrepreneur in me. But out of school, I went into financial services. I was kind of boring. I was good at it, but it was boring. Um, and then I, you know, I moved to Charleston, South Carolina in 2008 to, to kind of re, you know, reassess everything. Um, and when I got there, I took a sales job in software to sort of, you know, to get to Charleston and then figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And then, you know, six months later, both my parents got sick. And both were diagnosed with chronic illnesses and both were attributed to diet and lifestyle. And so I became super interested in food and its impact on our health holistically. And I learned to cook. And so after I learned to cook and I started paying attention to ingredients and, and so forth, and really just cleaned up my own, my own diet, I was taking desk snacks to work with me. And one of the desk snacks that I took was homemade beef jerky. And it was just a good, good source of high quality protein without a bunch of junk in it. Not the kind of stuff you buy at the gas station, but like really good high quality stuff I was making. And it was always getting stolen from my desk drawer. All my buddies would steal it. So I put a tip jar out and I made people start paying me for it. And sure enough, man, people would drop in $10 bills and $20 bills with little sticky notes and their names on it. And suddenly, you know, it was like my part-time job to make beef jerky for my buddies at work. Uh, and it's a painstaking process to do at home, by the way. It's not something that you just, you know, oh, I just go whip this stuff up. It's hours and hours and hours. So long story short on this is that uh, I had six of these like microwave size dehydrators in my little kitchen condo at the time. And my, my wife goes out on a girl's night out um, and comes home and is like, look, you got to get this stuff out of our house. Everything we have smells like smoke. You know, there's no room in the refrigerator. The kitchen has been completely taken over. And this was sort of the aha moment. Like, are we on to something? So right. uh, nonetheless, you know, we, I spent the next year learning all about the regulatory side of food manufacturing. And, um, and then September of 2012, I quit my day job and went full time into the better for you meat snacks business. Um, and I had a little 200 square foot shared ca kitchen catering space that I was using to, to make this stuff out of. Um, and that was my, I got my first heavy dose since we're talking packaging, my first heavy dose in USDA regulations on packaging, 
um, during that time because that you know you had to sort of you know design a package and then mail it into the USDA and wait for their feedback and then you'd get a big red denied stamp and then mail right. it back to you and then you'd have to figure out what it was denied for and you had to go back to the drawing board but um, yeah man and then sort of you know is is the last you know decade has been and more than a decade uh, has been you know, like drinking water from a fire hose, you know, the products today were, you know, we make meat snacks, but we also make sauces and condiments under no, noble made as well as a line of dry seasoning blends. And we've got, uh, I don't know, products in somewhere north of 7,000 locations in the U S have 25 products on the global planogram at whole foods and sprouts. And, um, you know, we do business with places like Wegmans and Walmart and, um, and so, you know, it's, it's been, a it's been an interesting journey. Uh, we have failed forward, that is for sure. Uh, but everything I know about consumer products, everything I know about packaging, everything I know about uh, operations or any of this stuff that it takes to build uh, a consumer brand, I've learned in the trenches. Sounds like it. I mean, and I'm guessing you have had to scale out beyond your 200 square foot shared commercial <laughs> space. Is that correct? Just a little. Yeah. You yeah. know, we... We spent about a year and a half um, beating our heads against the walls, manufacturing ourselves um, and trying to like, you know, go up in size a facility. And then we realized pretty quickly that we were re- way better at selling uh, and storytelling and brand building than we were at manufacturing. So we we started to outsource our manufacturing probably 18 months in uh, to people who were just way better at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's pretty common. If, if you're listening to this and you're like, wait, what? Um, that's that is the it is incredibly common, right? Because there's so many different nuanced laws and regulations around manufacturing that somebody has just figured out. And, you know, if you as long as you can maintain control of the quality of the product, the ingredients in the product, um, you don't actually have to make it. And there's people who can make it and, and keep pricing down. Right. And this is a co-packers and contract manufacturers are way yeah. more common than most probably realize well and you can leverage their economies of scale too to sort of to your point reach reach better price points and your cost of goods early um i mean you know if, you, if we'll just use a very common we'll just use garlic powder very commonly used in almost all food applications um you know i only have so much demand for garlic powder but there might be seven other manufacturers that utilize the same facility that all need garlic powder and it's all a similar spec. And so you can just benefit from the economies of scale of the co-man being able to purchase garlic powder across seven or eight different companies at scale and, and sort of, you know, spread the, the reduced price point out. So it's a, yeah. it's a, it's definitely a way to do that. And it's very, very common, uh, particularly in today's consumer products world. Well, and we see that, you know, we could, we could go over to packaging, right? I mean, it's like, I see that a lot on the packaging, manufacturing and kind of design side, which is the same company, it, you know, they, they may have one container that has different, you know, different ingredients that go into it, different label that's going to go around it, but it's gonna be the same size label on the same container with the same closure and that economy of scale. If, you know, you had to just come to a, you know, Berlin or Tricor and buy that container then your price point is going to be higher and so why wouldn't why wouldn't you benefit from from that especially you know going back to kind of what you do it sounds like you you probably play in the healthier for you maybe a higher price point than than what somebody else is used to so any any kind of margin that you can 
withhold back is going to help get better for you products into the into the mouths of you know people who need it there's a going back to the hip-hop thing there's a hip-hop artist named show baraka i don't know if you're do you know who he is i don't it's super hit or miss but he's got a great line uh he says um why ain't there no whole foods in the hood all i see is fast food here can't we eat good and so mm. being able to utilize maybe there are whole foods now in in other places i don't exactly know but that idea of being able to take healthy for you products you talk about growing up in section eight housing and get them into the places where they're needed is huge in any any opportunity to do that i'm guessing like getting knowing your background and knowing your why i'm sure you're gonna take all right let me just jump in here real quickly because this is super exciting uh my wife and i and our kids came out with this book, Packaging Peaks in the Sticky Situation. It took us a couple of years to write. We spent a lot of time in illustrating and all that. It's finally out. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at mascotbooks.com. There's a link down in the show notes that you can click. We wrote it because I was trying to describe to my kids you know, what it's like. And there's all these children's books out there about various different industries and about various different jobs. We wanted people in our industry to have a book to be able to relate to their kids with. So go pick it up, please. It would mean so much to support us. Packaging Peaks in the Sticky Situation on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Let's get back into this interview. No, 100%. And and look, you know, if, if you looked at my LinkedIn profile, it says that I'm disrupting a broken and toxic food system um at the new primal and and really that is at the core of what we do and you know we make low sugar pantry staples and protein snacks that still taste good um you know made with real food ingredients but you know we do that in order to disrupt a broken and toxic food system because you know very very candidly i mean the, the rapper is correct first of all um that you know t- it, it, the lowest income communities tend to have the least opportunities when it comes to access to fresh food, clean label food, you know, there's plenty of, you know, convenience stores with highly processed junk on the shelves in those communities, but there aren't, there aren't great options for actually accessing real food. So that's a whole different problem in and of itself, but to the extent that I can make, so, you know, sugar, for example, which we have a huge platform to reduce in, in all of the products that we make. Sugar is overused in almost every food product you find in the stores and even in restaurants. And, and so sugar is also a really cheap ingredient. Mm-hmm. So one, it's addictive, you know, two, it's, you know, it's, we McDonald's has changed our palate for how things should taste, but, but it's also really, really cheap. And so when you, when you use it as a filler ingredient, um, yeah, you can make really cheap food and put it out there. Well, I don't use any of that. And so, yeah, it's just naturally it's just more expensive to make things that don't have garbage in it. And, um, and so, yeah, every chance that we can get to reduce costs in the system without, um, without sort of compromising the integrity of the product itself, we're looking to do it. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's right. You know, I don't think I can ever make, you know, a $1.99 bottle of barbecue sauce. Like, I don't think that's possible to make that with real food ingredients, but I certainly can make it at a better price point. Maybe then that's even in the market today. Um, and get and you know sort of create more access to those items for for other consumers. I love that so much. Yeah. Um, and it's it's imperative. I mean, if you think about this, is a whole other train of thought. But like, 
the the taxation that our that poor diets have on the healthcare system in the U.S. is insane, and and you know creating incentives for all Americans. Let's just talk about America here. Is that primarily where all your products are sold? Is it North America yeah. or just in America? Yeah, yeah so in the U.S. Yeah. yeah, so in the U.S. it's there. There is actually a selfish reason for us as as a country to to help sustainably feed people um, healthy things. Because when, when we feed them unhealthy things, even though we can do that at scale, we still bear the costs of that. It's just not borne always directly by those communities and by those people. So there's, that's a whole other thing. But as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, like, yeah, why don't we, why do we subsidize, for example, um, you know, corn to turn into corn syrup and, you know, that kind of stuff. Like what's there, there's gotta be some sort of incentive process there that maybe you or I could speculate on, but we can maybe leave that up to <laughs> look, I'll say this speculations. I'll, I'll say this without getting into too much trouble. Um, what I find in my direct dealings with, uh, government regulatory agencies, uh, who regulate food, FDA, USDA, so on and so forth. And, and, so, so number one, I think that we have lots of competing priorities. You know, there are lobbyists that lobby those agencies for big food, sure. just like they do for any any sort of anything. Um, so that, that that's one thing. But what I find, just generally speaking, when I look at all the regulatory stuff, they are far more concerned with things that will harm you or kill you acutely. Um, mm. Foodborne illness, you know, listeria. Uh, you know, things like that, like food safety is at, I would say, the center of the way they think about regulating the food business. So I think that like they are concerned with, is that product going to go into the public and make somebody sick and kill them? Right. They're way less concerned with, is that product going to go into the public and slowly kill the entire population and make them sick? Uh, less concerned with that. We Chronic illness, we don't really think much about, right? And this mm -hmm. is, these, you know, and things like, you know, that you, some of those ingredients that you just referenced are the things that contribute. And we know there's enough, there's enough right. data out there. Those are the things that hurt us chronically, but no one's willing to stand up. Like, you know, no one's willing to talk about like dealing with like the farm bill and like how we subsidize some of these crops that are cheap ingredients that really are killing people. And maybe even the way we treat those crops, you know, when it comes to the pesticide abuse and all the things that we do and we overuse. So I don't think anyone's willing to take on the battle one mm. and two i think that you said it earlier about the aligning incentives the incentives are all completely misaligned and so it almost takes an entire you know tearing down of the system to rebuild and i don't think anyone's willing to do that what i've found personally the only way to fight that battle is to offer the cons offer consumer something different and do my very best to educate people on why it's better um, and let people vote with their dollars and at the end of the day that's the only thing in this country that really moves the needle. I mean, grass-fed beef, for example. I mean, we were the first company to launch a 100% grass-fed beef jerky product into commerce. There might have been some farmer's markets and maybe some small brands that I'm not aware of. But, like, we put it on a national scale, I think, before anyone else did. And, like, that was at the very early days of, like, if you could walk into any normal grocery store, and it'd be rare if you could find, like, ground beef that was made from grass-fed animals today you can go into walmart and mm -hmm. grass-fed beef and so you know 12 years later like 
you create enough of a market and you, you create enough demand and you see people are, are doing this, that changes the practices of these farmers. You know, when you have to import the beef from South America or Australia or New Zealand because they have tons of grass-fed beef and all we have is this big industrial agricultural model, um, some of the, 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 you know, the domestic raisers say, no, we, we want a piece of that pie. And so we're going to convert our farming practices back to a more holistic approach from this sort of, you know, big, you know, industrial confined animal feedlot operation. And so, you know, I think it's really, you know, consumers have to vote with their dollars. And unfortunately, we have to offer premium food at premium prices uh, in order to create the market to create enough scale to make those products available downstream. Unfortunately, right. that's the only way I know to do it today. Yeah. And, you know, we, it, I guess, kind of pivoting into packaging as well. It's a similar battle that we fight when it comes to, you know, things like, you know, quote, sustainable packaging, which is a whole other can of worms. But yeah. the, the idea is that, you know, there, there are potential alternatives, but the, the cost and the performance, if we, if we talk about food packaging, right, the, the performance of the actual material for trying to get away from, you know, like single use plastics, we're trying to get away from that. Currently, the performance of most of these materials is not appropriate to go into a direct food contact application. And it's like, well, how do we get it there? We need money in order to do the research to scale it up. And so people need to buy the product. But why would you, how are you, who's going to buy the product? Because you're, as a food company, you're already fighting for those those margins especially d to c and retail you're, you're fighting and you're scratching and you're clawing and then to be like here's this alternative that's made from this you know from whatever sugarcane and but it's but it's 15 times more expensive it's like oh, right i can't right. do that so right. you know we we feel that tension in our industry similar to how you're feeling the tension but i think it's positive tension for us to continue to work through um because if if we all just gave up then nothing's right. going to change. That's right. That's and right. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for you for not giving up, um, and for continuing to push through. And I mean, being in seven thousand locations is is awesome. I want to go back to something that we we talked about. Uh, you talked about you know learning about USDA regulations early on and the role that plays in packaging. Um, I got to do a, a TEDx Salt Lake City talk, and I mentioned the role that packaging plays in reducing greenhouse gas emissions through food waste and, you know, helping for, to prolong the life of food. Did you have to engage with, you know, packaging engineers or material experts when you started to get into scaling this up and going, how do we take natural ingredients and put them together in such a way that it's going to be, have a prolonged shelf life in order to get into the mouths of people who most wanted or need it. What was that process like for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So, you know, today we we have two, call it very different types of packaging over on our condiments and seasoning side of the business. Everything we do is we use glass. Um, and so glass with some, you know, with a, with a label is relatively simple. And a cap with like an induction yeah. seal or something like that. That's right, that's right. And then over on the meat snack side, though, you deal with multi-layer, right, high barrier protection pouches. And early on, you know, I didn't really understand the differences between, you know, the various types of, of layers. So that's exactly right. I had to call various, 
you know, packaging suppliers, talk to some of their engineers and get their guidance on the, you know, and there was two or three different types of applications that I think people suggested the most that just kind of continually comes up. I, early on, I asked for uh, not only forget recyclable, I said, can we make, can we, can we get this high barrier multi-layer stuff that's compostable? And everyone laughed at me. Um, and, and it just, you know, and and so the trade-off though, for me, cause this, this was like a real like philosophical debate that we had early on. It was, um, well, do, you know, we're, we're talking about sustainable agriculture. We're talking about the benefits of grass-fed beef and, and this holistic farming approach. And then I'm going to go put this in this multi-layer high barrier protection film that's going to last who knows how long. Mm-hmm. And so I really was at odds with myself when we launched the brand. But we have a saying internally that you can't let perfect get in the way of good. And and so my thought was I was doing more good by by supporting and raising awareness around grass-fed beef and i was doing more impact to positively affect you know the planet and and all of that by supporting these better agricultural practices and we'll try to create enough scale to be able to have those you know innovation discussions around packaging but yeah i mean we had to i mean we those are all discussions and it still comes up today when you know someone launches something you know we make barbecue sauce and so when someone launches a barbecue sauce in this cool like squeeze bottle that's you know, we go, is that available to us? And it's like, well, you know, if we go that route, you know, how does that impact shelf life? You know, mm-hmm. how does that impact the integrity of the product inside? Um, and uh, and so it's it's something that comes up constantly for us. Uh, and we do have to consult with people about that. I mean, I think innovation around, you know, hot fill and cold fill and some of that over on the condiment side has been slow, but is seems to be picking up steam. Um but uh, but no, it's a it's a conversation that we have to sort of have with ourselves, you know, both to answer philosophical, you know, belief types of questions. And then two, like what is actually going to make sure the product maintains its integrity and delivers to the consumer on its promise. And that to, to us is paramount. Yep. And then, you know, then we can back into the, the real hardcore philosophical beliefs. Yeah, there, there's no there. There'd be no gotcha moment there because I think you're absolutely philosophically correct. Right. Which is I say this to large, I mean, big, giant multinational brands, if packaging does not protect the product, if it's unable to sustain a product from manufacturing point to consumption point, especially if it's food, then it is not by definition sustainable. That's actually the definition of the word. And so that's the core function of the packaging. Do yeah. we do we want innovation? Sure. But I can guarantee you that there is more energy put into the raising of the cattle, the, the, the feeding with the grass, the processing of the meat, there's more energy that goes into that product than goes into the high barrier film guaranteed. Um, and so if that, if that product goes bad and has to be landfilled, we have done more harm to the environment and in your case have not gotten product into healthy, low sugar product to disrupt the food system. We have, we have, the purpose has not been fulfilled. So packaging has to play its role and yeah, it would be great. And this is kind of my, my last question I typically ask is like, if you could ma- wave a magic wand and fix something about the packaging industry, like oftentimes people go to materials, which I think is a fair answer, but it'd be great if we could, but it's just not quite there yet. Like we don't even have the industrial composting facilities to handle right. like the, the transportation of these things, even if, even if the barrier properties were there, they're, they're still supply chain things, right? That we're, we're trying to figure stuff out here yeah. on, our, on our side. Yeah. 
No, and, and you know, to, to that point, we we went to a, a, a recyclable pouch for our meat snacks um, and some recyclable film. But to your point about the infrastructure, it's still you have still have to drop it off at a store. It won't get picked yeah, up in your local. Cleaned. Yeah, and it won't get. And so like that just becomes a, a point of friction. And it oh, so are we going to do that and put that on our packaging because it makes us feel good. And then the consumers are just going to throw it in the trash because they're never going to collect. I mean, the, the amount of people that are going to just collect that and drive it to the store clean and all that is is so minuscule at this point, unfortunately. They're all but, listening to the podcast, by the way. They're like, yeah. I do. It's like, yeah, you're listening <laughs> to a packaging podcast. You're part of the you're part of the very small few. Right, like, right. Joe Rogan here. This is <laughs> you know. I, what I would say is, um, I don't know if this is the because materials would always be the one I would go to for some of this. But you know, I, I don't think we do enough domestically. Personally, mm -hmm. I, I think that unfortunately, you know, the the way the costs and the materials and all of these things are modeled today, like I don't think we do enough domestically. I'm a real hands-on kind of guy, and I like to. Like I like to go beyond site when we're producing. Like I like to go beyond site when when you know we're doing a first run and do you know press approvals and things like that. And can you get getting... cyan there? It's like oh, that sounds fun to say. <laughs> you know, you know, like but, but you know you can do paperboard and and cardboard and things like that. That's all you know. We can do a lot of that here, but you know, high barrier plastic film. I mean, that's all you know overseas. Uh, glass bottles. I mean, I. I don't think, I think there's one or two glass plants in the entire U S um, you know, we just don't do a lot of that. And I don't know if that's ever coming back, but I, I would say I, I like if I had the opportunity to collaborate in real time, I think we could make a lot more progress or I think we'd have a lot less call them errors along the way versus like, you know, we do these press approvals they send over a digital approval on a rendering we sign off on it and then we cross our fingers 16 weeks later when the packaging arrives and so like that's a huge problem you know at this stage you know at, at an earlier stage emerging brand because um, you lose a lot of control and i think you know one of the points you may get to or you it might might come up or probably comes up a lot is you know for us you know the cost of shelf space is very expensive Mm -hmm. And the, the cost to maintain your shelf space is very expensive. And so you don't get a lot of opportunities to make those impressions for consumers. And so, you know, I, I, I remember we converted our packaging. One, one kind of war story is we converted our packaging from a, a brown paper kind of craft paper bag. It was a stock bag. We put stickers on it for, for grass-fed beef jerky back in the day. And we converted to a pre-printed colorful pouch. Um, and we signed off on proofs and this was early on and, you know, everything looked really cool. The design was awesome. And then when all these pouches showed up, we didn't have any more packaging. So that we were, thank God they're here. Now we can keep running product. Um, you couldn't read it. I mean, mm -hmm. the, 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 the pouches were printed, like the white letters and things kind of all bled into the background of the colors. Yep. You couldn't read it. And so when it was up on the shelf, it just looked like a colorful blob. You had to like get right up on it to realize what it was. Uh, and so for us back then, it was like, well, we either go out of stock and we wait, you know, 12 weeks to run this again, or we just start putting product on shelves and keep your fingers crossed. And those are real critical, you know, crucial moments in an early stage brand that, you know, can make or break you. And, and you know, fortunately, I'm too stubborn to be that easily broken, but I can see that breaking a lot of people. Um, and so I just think, you know, if there were an opportunity to do more sort of on the fly collaboration more print approvals, you know, things that are like, you know, 
I think that would be better. I don't know that we're going to change that. I don't know infrastructurally if we're ever going to reinvest in that here, but I would, I would love to see more domestic production where we can have sort of a, a really hands-on um, collaborative process. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been, I've been all over the world, seen a lot of different packaging printing facilities um, a lot here in the U S and um, there's there that you're right. There's stuff that we do really well here and there's things that we would need some investment to get better at, but yeah. um, it's that, that's a great, that's, I think that's the first uh, magic wand answer that someone's given about domestic production. So I like it. There you go. That would um, be unique. Well, Jason, this has been great. Um, outside of buying your CD um, from the late nineties, <laughs> uh, how, how could people, uh, find out more about the new primal where where i like to ask this question because i really don't know the answer what is the best way like i want to go buy your product right? i live in salt lake city utah what is the best way for your company for me to buy your product direct from their it's website a, go on go to retailer you tell me uh, you know i'm indifferent I, if you're in salt lake city you can go into your sprouts you can go into your whole foods that really helps me you know um it, it really really helps me to go into those stores you can go into your Harmons uh in those communities and find our products um, you could also go on Thrive Market. You can go on Amazon or you can go on thenewprimal.com, uh, any of those places. But, you know, we fight and claw for that shelf space and store so, so much that the unit velocities, the movement off the shelf really matters to keep it there. And, you know, we could put products online and people could order them. But, you know, people are still omnichannel shoppers and we still go into grocery stores and things like that. Um, before we got into as many stores as we were in, that was the biggest complaint. It was like, I can't find you in my local whatever. On our website, there's a list of stores that carry our products in your community. You put in the zip code, it'll tell you which stores carry what. Uh, so it's really convenient to, to know that. You know, I don't necessarily make more money. The brand doesn't really make more money. If you buy it online, we still have fulfillment costs and shipping and all of that. So it helps us just as much if you go into your local store. I mean, if you want to be on subscribe and save on Amazon, you'll save a few pennies. And then also, you know, it'll keep some recurring uh, revenue there, but, but otherwise, I, you know, I don't really care. I, I, I really, I sort of have a bias towards in store just cause we fight so hard for that. Um, but, uh, but otherwise it's available, you know, in, in several ways. So all of the ways will contribute to disrupting the toxic food system. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. Perfect. Absolutely. Well, uh, if you're listening to this in Salt Lake city, then or wherever i don't really care but go to the website um i know i'm going to go pick some stuff up i've got two 16 year old boys who are high level athletes and as you're talking i'm like those are the kinds of people like i'm just going to go i'll buy you you'll get a reorder from somebody here i'm sure maybe it's a Harmons near me someone will be like what happened when he bought up all of our product um and send it send it over to us some basketball and football players i love it uh jason i really appreciate you coming on for your candor and your authenticity and for your mission and purpose i think it's it's wonderful everyone go check out uh the new primal and uh noble made those are the two brands thanks for coming on jason appreciate it thank you i appreciate you having me hey congrats you made it to the end of the podcast if you're looking for more great podcast material in the packaging industry please check out sustainable packaging with Corey connors and the newly redesigned Package Unboxed with Avelio Matos. Go find them wherever you listened to this podcast. Thanks, everybody.